Welcome to the Strata Leadership Show, a podcast designed to help you gain clarity, lead effectively, and drive results for yourself, your team, and your organization. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Miller. Today on the Strata Leadership Show, we have a good friend of mine and someone that I've spent a lot of time with, someone that I just appreciate. I appreciate his um, the way he thinks, and I appreciate the heart that he has uh, about leadership. And the company that he leads is called Kim Ray, and our guest today is the CEO of Kim Ray, Thomas Hill. So, Thomas, welcome to the Strata Leadership Show. Nathan, thank you very much. I am extremely honored to be here. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. So, Thomas is an author. Uh, The book that he wrote a couple of years ago now is called Recovering Leadership. Um, And it's a great book that really talked about the, the story that a lot of leaders have, but they might not be have might not have the courage to share. And so, if you want to check out a great book, uh, Recovering Leadership is a book that I would recommend to you. Uh, Thomas is also an effective and captivating speaker, and so I've uh, heard him speak in different uh, forums. And he's someone that um, is just heartfelt, and, and he cares deeply about people. But the the primary reason that people tend to know about him is because of the work at Kimray. Can you tell us a little bit about? Kimray. What is Kimray? What is Kimray? That's a fantastic question. Kimray is a family-owned, 73-year-old manufacturing company located here in Oklahoma City. Our, our primary and only manufacturing facilities are here in Oklahoma City. We manufacture valves, level controls, temperature controls, and other fluid controls for oil and gas production. And for those in your audience who are not familiar with that, that means that our product is out on the well sites as you're driving around areas that have oil and gas production like Oklahoma or Texas or many other places in the United States. Uh, And you look off on the side of the road and you see a a well site. There's some tanks. Maybe they're horizontally oriented or vertically oriented. Those vessels are producing that and they're separating the fluids that come out of the ground and our controls manage those processes, manage the levels and the pressures and the temperatures uh, in all of those processes. And that's it. That's what we do. We do that predominantly in North America, but also in South America and overseas, a smaller portion of our business, but, but predominantly here. Founded by my grandfather in 1948, started in a couple of, of rooms in a built, rented building, and they, they basically machined all the parts by hand on manual lays assembled the valves, painted them by hand, and then put them in the back of a pickup truck and drove around in the oil field, which in 48 was kind of like the Wild West, and tried to convince people that they had a better way to control gas pressure in a well. And over time, obviously, that idea took off. Now we account for about 85% of the type of controls that we make. We have about 85% of that market. So to have a, a company that is that has been around for that length of time in a very competitive market, um, it's obviously a, um, a feat. Uh, it, it speaks to the quality of the product, the quality of the engineering. But if I talk to most people about Kimray, they are often unaware even of what all Kimray does. But what they are aware of is the culture that Kimray is trying to create or shape. And I don't know a company that has been more aggressive over time in their efforts to try to make life better for their employees. Now, recently, you've been going through some challenging times with the oil and gas industry, as well as COVID-19, but the the mission of trying to make life better for your employees has remained constant. Why, why is your company 
so focused on the people who work there? Well, I think we have to go all the way back to my grandfather who believed very strongly that uh, we had a responsibility in the communities that we lived and worked in to do a few things. One, he, he believed everybody should work. He believed that that was good for people to be gainfully employed. It, it, it's kind of how he thought you should manage your life. And he thought that, that the people who work should do that work, should be allowed or, or have the privilege. I don't know that we consider it a privilege. I actually think it's a right, but it should be able to do that work in an environment that was safe and healthy, not just physically, but also mentally and emotionally. And that they should be well compensated and that they should share in the rewards of doing that work well. Uh, so we've had profit sharing since before profit sharing was, was even popular. And then he extended his ideology beyond just himself or the people that work directly for him. He believes that he believed that we have a responsibility to the community that we live and work in, that we are part of the fabric that makes where we live and work great, and that we needed to participate, invest donate, give, support, all of those things. And then he thought that that just to be a good business person and functionally to be a good person, that we needed to treat uh, everybody along our supply chain the same way. So we needed to take care of our vendors and be loyal to them and helpful to them, be partners with them. And then we also needed to be partners with our customers and be loyal to them and helpful to them. And so that played out in a, in a thousand small things that Camry has almost always done or done in some way, shape or form that, that led to the reputation that, that you now talk about. And um, obviously I'm family and involved in the organization, but I can't tell you how many times, it's rare that somebody sees Camry on my shirt and goes, oh, you guys make great valves. Actually in Oklahoma City, very few people actually know what we do or what industry we're in, but almost I can't walk in anywhere without a Camry shirt. And somebody says, oh, you work at Camry? I've heard that's a great place or that, you know, they, it's something somehow Kimray has impacted them through community involvement or, or what have you. And so that really started, started way back then. I will tell you that my father sat at my grandfather's feet, so to speak, and learned very well. And, and while he did not necessarily get those lessons in his home life growing up, as he began to be around Garmin and, and work for Garmin, he became very much like my grandfather. And so in his tenure as the leader of Kimray, he continued that and actually advanced and expanded it. He did a good job of, of kind of noticing where the world was going and keeping up with the things that we could do in the community and things we could do for our people. And then I'm really just a, a lucky kind of got dropped into a I've been at Kimry for probably 30 years, but in terms of senior uh, management, maybe for the last um, 15 or 20, and really have just been lucky to be able to follow in the footsteps of my grandfather and my father and continue uh, to adapt and to do the things that are necessary to keep us relevant, but to never stray from those core values. We, we only have four core values, to honor the Lord in everything that we do. Um, that's a pretty simple one to look at. And then to strengthen our families, uh, to take care of our people, not just the individual that works at Kimberly, but their entire family, the impact of our policies and procedures on them, to be good stewards of all of our resources, not just our money, but our time and our property and our influence and our you know, position in the community. And then last but not least, to maintain our good name. 
I tell everybody that comes to Kimray, I get to meet with everybody in onboarding for a little bit of time. And one of the things that I tell them is you and I are inheriting a name, a reputation. Nathan, that reputation that you are speaking about, I did not create that. The new people that are coming into Kimray did that we've, we've inherited this ability not to destroy it because as all your listeners know, you can destroy a reputation in a moment and it takes a lifetime to build. So we want to make sure that we that we take care of what we have. I think our reputation is the most important asset that we have is, is who we are. So we're very, very careful about that. And so we've just, really, I've just followed those those core values follow those principles and try to then, you know, be the leader that I am, but to, but to make sure that I maintain those things. So you are the third generation. And when I talk to people who are part of family owned companies, they talk about how challenging and exciting it is to be the first generation, to be that entrepreneur that is the maverick taking on the world. And then the the second generation has some different challenges of not just leading, but learning how to manage well. But it's often in the third generation that you really start seeing some of the really unique challenges of family-owned businesses. And you talked about walking in the footsteps of the people who went before you, which is not an easy thing to do. And so when you look back on on your leadership journey, tell us about life as a leader, growing up uh, in a home where where people have expectations of you, uh, of your family because of the company, and then you're growing up in that environment trying to uh, understand what that role might be. Well, that's a loaded question, Nathan, and and it's loaded because you know my story and and, uh, but I'm going to answer it. Uh, I'm going to give you what you're asking for. Not that it's that, not that I'm, you know, telling anybody anything that I haven't already written in a book and put out there. So I'm pretty safe on this one, but yes, it is very challenging and um, not all, not everybody handles it well. And I've had the privilege of, of working with and talking to a lot of uh, people in my generation uh, who are second, third, or even fourth generation in their companies. And first of all, there are very, very few of us. It's very unusual for a company to survive the second and third generation transition. And they've all experienced some version of the things that we've experienced. You know, the the founder, the entrepreneur is usually, certainly in a company as old as ours, no fault of his own. It was how he was taught. But Garmin is very command and control as a leader. And uh, it was his company. It was his vision. It was his product. It was his design. And there wasn't really anybody, nobody could say, well, it's not okay for you to just tell everybody what to do. Obviously, he told everybody what to do. And the company was small enough that he actually could tell everybody what to do. My father was very similar, very much, uh, he's a Marine, uh, obviously not currently active, but very much that military training was was part of his foundational uh, operational beliefs. And so he had a tendency to, to operate the same way. I think my father struggled because Garmin never completely stepped out of the role of being the leader of Kimray, even when my father was the leader of Kimray, you know, really not until he died. Um, Garmin, you know, had something to say about everything. And, uh, and and that's very difficult for someone who's type A, firstborn, obviously a leader. And my father did that very, very well, honored Garmin and is to be supremely commended for all the work he did at Kimray. But from the inside, I watched him at times chafe at that. And, and then unfortunately, he did the same thing to me. He put me in positions of responsibility and then micromanaged me at times. And, and there were lots of things that had to go through him. And 
And if he wasn't sure, then we had to go to go through Garmin. So it's pretty much, you know, no idea happened. Nothing really changed in the company unless my father and or Garmin agreed with it. And, and that bothered me. Now that combined with the fact that I did grow up around these men who were unbelievably successful. My grandfather had 44 patents to his name and founded a company that became very successful, influenced so many things that it's hard to count. Uh, some of the more interesting ones, you know, he was involved with the doctors here in Oklahoma who pioneered open heart surgery and was actually in the operating rooms when they did those first surgeries because he built the equipment that was handling people's blood when they took it out of someone's body, an outside pump, oxygenated it, debubbled it, controlled the temperature, and then put it back in the person's body. Garmin made that equipment and had designed a lot of those things. And he was very interested in uh, music, especially classical music, and did a lot of recording and even created some recording equipment. And just he was just interested in so many things, was involved in so many things. You couldn't go anywhere. When I was a kid, you couldn't really go anywhere, any circle in Oklahoma City my grandfather wasn't known and everybody knew what he had done. My dad was very, very similar. Also an inventor, an engineer, designed the first cardiac output computer, got a patent for all of that technology and founded a company based on that and, and just did, you know, I grew up around men who, if it broke, we took it apart. We analyzed how the part broke. We designed a better part, machined it or built it, put the thing back together. I thought everybody did that. And it turns out that most people don't actually. I didn't find that out until I was a teenager. And so growing up around those men, I began to believe that my value was based on my accomplishment or my performance, because that's how I saw people valuing them. People appreciated them because they did. They were accomplished, they created, they solved problems, they made things happen. And then I also saw, you know, my, both my grandfather and my father were not really very emotional men. They were very guarded. And so they never really admitted they were wrong. They never seemed to be scared or uncertain or anything. They, they always seemed to know what they were going to do, where they were going to go, how it was going to work. And they told everybody around them what to do and everybody did it and it worked. And we went, moved on to the next thing. And then everybody patted them on the back for that. And so I believed that my value was based on my performance and that to be a man, I needed to be this stoic, never afraid, never uncertain. And the problem was, is that's not how I felt at all inside. And I think if I were to query the people that are listening to this and they're being, and they would be honest, everybody that I would be talking to would say, no, I'm, I'm internally, I'm not sure. I have questions. I have doubts. I'm not sure if I'm doing the right thing. Even if you're the CEO, even if you're the head of the company. And so I struggled with that disconnect and that emotional issues that I had um, then began to create, I had to create ways to deal with that. And mostly that was performance and the processes that are involved in performance. And so I got really good at doing, as my therapist says, I was a human doing instead of a human being. And uh, I'm, I'm competitive. I'm fairly you know, good at what I do. I don't sleep much. And so I get a lot done. And I did that really well for a lot of years. Um, and moved up through the ranks at Kimray and played the game and, and did all that. And then my father got ill and needed to step out of his role. And that thrust me into a primary leadership role without really any, nobody had really prepared me for that. I mean, I'd been doing the job, doing the work, but I didn't know how to lead. I just knew how to tell people what to do. And that's, there's a huge difference between that, Nathan, and you know that, that, that there's lots and lots of people in leadership roles that are really just commanders, but that's not leadership. 
And so I brought to that role my my issues, my belief that performance created our value. And so I had the people around me competing for their value. And I didn't like have a contest or put up a sign on the wall, but but our beliefs organically create the cultures around us. And when you're the primary leader of an organization, you're primarily responsible for the organic culture that, that is built. And so I began there at the beginning of my leadership to erode something that had been there before. We didn't lose our values. We didn't lose uh, a lot of the culture, but in the upper management, it started to become a little more toxic environment. And then at the same time, um, I'm getting worse because these things that I'm doing, and I'm not a substance addict, but just like substance addiction, alcohol or drugs, what made you feel okay yesterday uh, doesn't work today. You have to do more. And then the next day you have to do more. So I was on this performance treadmill and it, the treadmill just kept speeding up and kept speeding up and kept speeding up. And by the time I was 48 years old, uh, this is about eight years ago in May of 2012. If you've ever seen a video, I'm, I'm sure most people have a, a YouTube video where somebody does something stupid on a treadmill and trips and then the treadmill kicks them off the back. And for some reason, they've always got the treadmill backed up against a wall, which the treadmill manufacturer will tell you you're not supposed to do. Nevertheless, it produces a much better video if you slam into a glass table or something. Well, that's what happened to me. I tripped on this treadmill of performance and got spit out the back in a horrific manner. And in about a two-day period, a Thursday and a Friday, I went from being the president of Kimray, being in charge of all of manufacturing and everything that we did, having, I sat on 12 different boards. Um, There's 600 people in Oklahoma City. I could have picked up the phone and called them and they would have taken a meeting uh, to being checked into an inpatient rehab facility in Texas because I had literally broken down and fallen apart. Basically everything had imploded. So that's, that's kind of the, the background of how I, how I got to, to kind of the darkest moment in my life. The, the great news is, is that I, I did get an opportunity in, in that treatment program to figure out what had happened to me in my past that had caused me to have that belief system. And I got an opportunity to correct that belief system. And that was actually a, an amazing process. It was horrific in one aspect because you're digging up everything in your past and throwing it out on the table. And, and it's very difficult and very emotional and very draining work. But I came out of that 67 days in, in treatment. I came out of that really understanding uh, that my value was intrinsic and that the things that I did didn't make me more or less valuable. And I thought that I had lost Kim Ray. So I thought I would never be able to go back to Kim Ray. And I was okay with that. I had mourned that. I had processed that. And so I came home, took a little bit more time off. A friend of mine and I started another company and I thought I would be, I thought that would be great. And I would just, I would just keep moving and was working on myself and I've stayed in therapy ever since. And which by the way, for the leaders out there, if you don't have a therapist, then I, I'm sorry for the people that you lead because we all need that work. We all need to be working on ourselves. But then the board called me and said, hey, we'd like to talk to you about coming back. And to make the, the story a little shorter, I did end up coming back. There was a number of things that had to be true for that to be healthy for me, and they were. And I came back as vice president of manufacturing, which is a position I had had 15 years before. And I was working for a guy that I had actually hired. It was a little bit humbling, but it was actually a really good experience and allowed me to test whether or not I was going to be okay in this environment. And I was doing well and, and things seemed to be going well. And so over a period of time, the board uh, eventually installed me as CEO. 
And the opportunity I've had because of that is that, first of all, I got to correct the mistakes that I had made and be a part of reestablishing a culture of what we call a value culture at Kimray, where we believe everybody is intrinsically valuable. Nobody at Kimray is competing for value. We let our ideas compete. We let our work compete, but nobody's competing for value. And I got an opportunity because of Kimray, because of that very thing that you opened this, this time with, that reputation that we have, has given me the opportunity to meet with people and speak with people. If anybody's familiar with recovery, and you know, I'm, 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 I do t- the 12 steps of recovery, and the most important step after the first three, which gets you out of the hole you're in, you acknowledge that you've got a problem and your life's unmanageable and you turn that over to God, after that, the most important step is the 12th step, which is where we, we say to each other, having had this spiritual awakening, having realized what has happened in our lives, we want to carry this message to other people. And so I have had the privilege not just to lead Kimray, which is a fabulous thing to get to do. And we have wonderful people and we do great things. But I also have the opportunity to speak with other leaders and to talk and through writing the book and, and the other things that I've gotten a, such a wonderful privilege to get to do. Um, I'm, I'm getting to tell that story and hopefully somebody hears me talking somewhere and says, ooh, that's me. I'm just earlier in that process than he was. And maybe they make a correction before they get to be on the YouTube video where they get slammed into the glass table off the treadmill. You know, I, I knew you before, before that happened and I have obviously known you since. And when he describes that, that's a great description. It was an uncontrolled, violent change of direction and then hitting a wall. And I say that because it was not a glancing blow. Uh, you, you hit that wall hard. And to, to watch that process of your family, uh, your, your, your parents, uh, your spouse, just the, the, your entire world stopped. Uh, while everybody looked around and, and then thought, how did that happen to him? And so those questions that began to be asked were, were so honest. And it's amazing to watch. I was, I was, uh, I've been friends with your, your dad and your mom and just talking to them and, and watching the changes within them because your recovery was not just limited to your life. It began to impact other people's lives. And so now, you know, you and I will go to different programs that uh, you might be speaking at, and I watch people respond to you. And when you open up about, I had this life, it wasn't working, even though it had the trappings of success, it was empty. And when you get honest about that, which I so appreciate you redeeming that pain by doing that. When you get honest about that, people respond. And and I've watched people of all ages, men and women, come up to you afterwards and they feel like they have found a friend and and someone who would understand. So how do you feel like your leadership has changed because you had such a a public hitting of that wall and, and then a public recovery? Well, that's a that's kind of a two part question and and what I would say is that while the public hitting the wall is not so much about my leadership changing, but what I would say is I wouldn't have, I would not have course corrected if I hadn't blown up. You know, I had had lots of opportunities in my life to change my direction. It's, I, I often say our problem is not lack of information. We have lots of information. It's lack of motivation. And the problem with addiction and the problem with addictive behaviors, because quite frankly, I 
see leaders all the time who behave like addicts. They may not be alcoholics or drug addicts or sex addicts or shopaholics or gambler, you know, but they behave like addicts behave in terms of how they treat the people around them and how they structure and order their world. Help me understand that a little bit, because uh, one, one of the, the, the challenges is when, when that's all you've known, that type of behavior may seem very normal and comfortable. And so when, you, when you're talking about that, you, you were getting into it right then, but help, help me understand what, what that means on, a, on that practical level so that someone listening in might say, you know, I think that's me. So the, at, the, at the core of addiction is a change that occurs in our brains. We've had a trauma and people struggle with the word trauma. You don't have to have been abused or abandoned or blown up as a child. There's lots and lots of traumatic things that happen to us on a daily basis. And some people process and handle those things and some people don't. And there's obviously lots of different degrees of that. But so when we've had a trauma or several traumas that produce emotional pain or physical pain, we have to determine as an as a individual how to deal with that. And some people choose to deal with that by medicating it in some way. That can be by drinking or taking drugs. It can also be by performing or bearing something or, you know, or to process addicts. I'm a process addict. I just had lots of little loops that I did of behavioral things, many of which were not in and of themselves a problem until they became the only thing I was capable of doing and I couldn't do my job. Some of them were problematic, but they don't have to be. And so what happens is, is in your brain, kind of the part that we call our lizard brain, which processes everything first, every emotion, every feeling, every thought, every input goes through this little tiny place in your brain that makes a very quick decision. Do I need to panic about this or don't I need to panic about this? And in an addict's brain, everything that causes us to panic tells us that we need to do our drug, whatever our drug is, to survive. That part of our brain makes it about living or dying. So an addict, if they don't drink or take drugs or do their process, they they don't maybe think in their head that they're going to die. But in that base of their brain, which is not thinking, it's just acting, there's the signal is if you don't go do what you need to do, you're going to die. And so addiction is a very selfish thing. And it's also it's marked by us continually attempting to alter our environment in order to make ourselves feel better. So we control the people around us. We manage things. We uh, th- th- these are, and when you find a leader who's controlling, manipulative, you know, hypermanaging people um, is difficult on people. Is you know, will ignore people for a while and then blow up at them. What they're doing is, is they're constantly attempting to arrange their surroundings so that their insides match up with something that they're trying to accomplish with their insides. The problem with that is it doesn't actually work. We we aren't really in control of the world around us. We're not in control of people. We're not in control of circumstances for the most part. We're just not in control of almost anything, even those of us who are in senior leadership positions. And so the first thing that they teach us in recovery is, is when I'm disturbed, the disturbance is in me. That doesn't mean nobody around me does anything wrong or anything like that. It just means that if I'm looking for serenity by reorganizing this, the, the chairs on the Titanic, I'm in trouble, right? That's not going to solve the problem. And so I see leaders all the time who are constantly shuffling the things around them and in order to manipulate their environment so that they feel better. That's how an addict behaves. And they may not be doing it with alcohol and drugs, but they're doing it nevertheless. Does that answer the question? It really does. And 
uh, I want to point out to leaders that there is a dark side uh, of leadership. As much as there are these good things that come from, you know, that concentration, that focus, that attention, the passion, there are also very negative things, which is why leaders who are often doing life uh, alone, if they're not careful, are so vulnerable to that. And I would say during this pandemic, during this crisis that is prolonged, you're going to see a lot more of that and to not be surprised by it. And to your point, it is often that type of behavior is an echo of pain. And when I can look at someone and say, you know, they're not an alcoholic because they're a bad person. They're not this because they're that. But they, um, for whatever reason, did not know how to process the pain. And they went down this path. Because when I see it that way, I, I don't look at somebody who is struggling with an addiction and, and, I'm, and, and I'm angry at them. I, I look at someone who's struggling with an addiction and in my heart, I'm thinking, what kind of uh, life, what kind of trauma, what kind of whatever it was came upon them that they would choose this path? And that path is often chosen very young. And so when we look at these, uh, these choices about alcohol or drugs or process addictions or pick any of these things, that was often in play years before that person met their spouse, had kids, launched a career. And so I'm saying this because of, of I want leaders to look at other people in their pain and for that to initiate compassion for other people, A. B. I want them to see that in their own life, that that path they are on was in all likelihood not one they chose because everything was going great and that they can find another path. I can't tell you, Nathan, how many times I have talked to a group, uh, whether it's small or large, and had somebody come up afterwards or send me a note or an email later and say, I'm where you were X, X, you know, in the past. And X distance in the past. And, and what, what is resonating with them is when I talk about, you know, as you achieve the things that you have set in front of yourself as goals, and then they're hollow. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything for you. You have to do the next thing and do the next thing. And you've got everything that you thought you wanted. You have the career that you thought you wanted. You have the money, the cars, house, whatever, whatever it is for you. And it can be different. It's different things for different people. You're on the bright boards or you're, you started a nonprofit and it's doing great things. It, people that are in trouble and are behaving like addicts don't always do bad things. Sometimes they do a lot of good things for all the wrong reasons. And that was certainly part of my story. I did lots of great things out of a compulsion to perform. The things I did were fine, but for me, they were harmful. I was, I was feeding you know, my own needs. And when they realize that they're, it's not helping, they don't feel better, they're still, they still have anxiety, they still feel empty, they still wake up in the middle of the night, um, they can't get any joy out of the thing they're doing. They're looking at, okay, what's the next thing I'm going to do? What's the next thing I'm going to acquire? What's the next thing I'm going to tackle? And when I start talking about that, lots of people, their eyes, kind of, I can see in their eyes, they're going, crap, you know, that's, that's kind of where I am. And what I think they don't realize is that doesn't unless you change your course, which is an internal thing that we have to do, an internal transformation that occurs in us and how we see ourselves and what we believe is true about ourselves, that continues to accelerate just like any addiction, just like drug addiction or alcohol addiction. You don't just keep doing a couple of drinks in the evening. Pretty soon you're drinking all day. The next thing you know, you can't get out of bed without a drink and then you lose your job, then you lose your health and then you end up homeless. Now, maybe that doesn't happen for leaders who have process addictions or, or who are, you know, 
tracing a narcissistic path maybe, but other really bad things happen. We drive all the people that we love away from us. We harm all of the relationships. And then for a leader who has really been placed in what I believe is a sacred position, the position of leadership means that we're responsible for the people that we lead. We don't own them. We didn't buy them. And I don't even like the fact that that we think of the fact that we pay them and so they owe us their time. We're We're borrowing them just like your neighbor might borrow your lawnmower. And we borrow them for a time from someone else, their community, their family, uh, their friends. We borrow them and it's our duty to return them in good shape, clean and full of gas, just like you'd want your neighbor to return your lawnmower. If he gives it back to you, you know, with no gas in it, you know, the blade's broken and, you know, the cable's torn out of one side, you're never going to let him borrow your lawnmower again and you're going to hold a resentment against him for a long time because it's just wrong. You know it's wrong. Well, the same thing's true with our people. When leaders are caught in their own addiction, they're using their people and they're using them up and they don't have a right to do that. And so we're violating the sanctity of the role that we have been given, the opportunity we've been given. What we should be doing is out of the abundance of our own lives, which we can have if we're healthy, out of the abundance of our own lives, we should be improving the lives of the people that we lead. I say all the time, you cannot have your best life unless the people around you have theirs. It's our job to provide people with their best life. And through that, we then actually get fulfillment. Through that, we actually feel good. We feel the way we, we think we want to feel, not by collecting things and having more power and doing more projects. Although you can do all that stuff, if you're healthy, then that stuff may not be a problem for you, but that's not the, that's not the mode we should be operating in. And I, I do want to commend you, your board, your executive team, because that decision, those values have been incredible guides so that people who work in your organization, they, you really are thinking of their emotional well-being, their spiritual well-being, their, their family, things like that. And I want to point out that I've watched that be lived out. That That's not just one of those things people say on a podcast like this. It's really it's really legitimate. So you have these experiences, you go through that, you find, wait a minute, I've been missing out on something. And then you you find yourself in a new frame of mind surrounded by new people that are part of your community. And you look up and you say, okay, as a leader, what's next? And for most leaders, they look around and say, hey, I've had this discovery. How can I serve other people with it? And you know, the, the, the rule of thumb is hold on for a little bit to make sure that uh, you're, you're in a good spot before you do something. But now that you've been a few years away from that uh, initial moment, what are you doing now to help other leaders find a path to a better life? Well, the, the first and most important thing is that we are equipping leaders here at Kimray to, and we, we, we are a sending organization. So people come to Kimray, they spend some time here and, and then they move on. Uh, and that's, and that's perfectly okay. We, we expect that. We think that that's normal. And that doesn't matter whether they um, worked on the shop floor, assembling or pulling parts, or whether they're a manager or a director, or even a, a vice president, 
the time that they spend here, we hope will help them form a healthy view of themselves and a healthy view of how they interact with the world around them. And then they'll carry the principles and the core values that we have at Camaray with them wherever they go. So that's first and foremost, we wanna make sure that we're doing a really good job of creating a healthy environment and an encouraging environment for people to grow and become the best that they can be right here at Kimray, because that's gonna impact their families and their communities and everywhere else. And then we also try whenever possible to help other companies. So we get asked a lot to sit down with another company and they it often starts along the lines of, hey, you got a great culture at Kimray, can you come in and help us create a culture here? And of course, they're a little disappointed when I start out by telling them that the culture of an organization is an organic result of the beliefs of the organization, which are the result of the beliefs of the leadership. So if you want a different culture, you need different leaders. And I'm usually talking to the leaders. So, but that's what happened at Kimray. We got different leadership. I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago. I'm a different leader now. And so we hope that we can help leaders transform themselves and therefore their organizations. And in order to do that better, uh, a little less than a year ago, we started a foundation, the Kimmel Foundation for Recovering Leadership, and then COVID hit. So we've, we've been a little hampered just like everybody else has. But in the long run, our goal is to facilitate experiences and time for leaders to see the need in themselves for that transformation. I can't fix anyone but I might be able to provide them an opportunity, whether that's through an experience or a speaking, you know, speaking to them or whatever, where they kind of go, oh, um, I have that problem. I need to do something about that. And then maybe give them a little guidance about, about what they can do. But what we have typically found is when people recognize that, um, they may have a lot of work to do, but they, they'll move in that direction on their own. I, I fundamentally believe that leader, most leaders want to be good leaders. They just don't know how. They just haven't been taught and they've got their own internal problems. So if we help them see that, give them an opportunity to, to acknowledge that, I think they'll move in the right direction. There are a lot of resources for them, but the foundation wants to be a community where they can find support and shelter, if, if you will, so as they, as they move down that road. And just like we do in addiction recovery, um, we help one another. And we have meetings and there are people that are in all different stages of recovery at those meetings. You might have somebody that's clean and sober for 10 days in a meeting with somebody who's been clean and sober for 30 years. We're on various places along that path. And each one of us can look forward and find someone who's farther down the path and say, hey, I'm gonna pay attention to what he's, he or she's doing. And all of us, even, even day one, there's somebody behind you. You know, there's somebody just walking into the room and you can reach back to them and say, let me, let me help you along. So we want to create a community. And interestingly enough, our, our little mascot is Bud, short for Red Bud, the bison. And the reason I like the bison is because as animals, they're very interesting. People think they're hard to, hard to manage, which is probably true. But the reason they're hard to manage is a couple of really interesting things. They're they're huge and they're very strong. A, a male bison weighs 2,000 pounds and can jump a six-foot fence from a standing position. So yes, they're difficult to control. However, they don't really want to go anywhere as long as three things are true. They need three things. They need their basic needs met, you know, food, water, that kind of stuff. They need to feel safe. They, if they're constantly being you know, harassed or attacked, they're going to move. And they need community. Bison will not, they don't, they don't ever do life alone. They want to be together. And so if you have a, a single male bison in a pen, you're in trouble because he's leaving the pen one way or another. 
Well, I started thinking about that's us, isn't it? I mean, we need our basic needs met, health, food, safety, you know, we, and we need safety. We need to be in a safe community and, and we need that community. And so we decided that we were going to call, you know, call our deal the herd. And so we're building a herd of leaders that can support one another and, and take care of one another and protect one another and talk to one another about these things that really don't get talked about very often. I mean, there's not a lot of places a leader can go and talk about how they're doing emotionally or talk about how they're doing mentally. It's not okay most of the time to raise your hand and say, I'm not okay. So we want the foundation to be a place where leaders can raise their hand and say, I'm struggling. I need somebody to help me and we can, and we can talk about that. And, and I don't know that we'll be doing all the help. I'm not a certified therapist or anything. I don't even play one on TV, but we want to point them in the right direction, but more importantly, just provide that support. So that's what we're doing. I really appreciate that um, more than, you know, and uh, just to put that out there for those who are listening in the Kimmel foundation. And with that, there are, is, a, is a podcast that Thomas uh, is leading that has um, a, a really incredible gathering of people that he has been uh, having great conversations with. There, there's also, Thomas is a, a truly exceptional writer. And so he has a thing called Monday Musings uh, every week where he's providing some insights into life and into how to, in uh, and, and ways to live. And so the Kimmel Foundation is um, something I would recommend to you. As he said, they started about a year ago, but um, the, it's been, you know, a bit delayed because of COVID. But there's going to be some great things coming down the line before long. And, and I would put that on your radar because I have found that leaders who are able to engage with other leaders, <laughs> when you put leaders in a room, it's not a collision. It's a homecoming because I find that leaders are not threatened by other successful people, that they uh, enjoy, perhaps more than anything, watching other people thrive and succeed. So, Thomas, if they want to learn more about the podcast, where, where do they need to go to find that? Well, they can go to thekimmelfoundation.org is our website. Um, they can follow us on social media. That's the Kimmel FDN on most of the normal social media channels. I, I have to admit, I don't do social media myself, so I don't have a Facebook account. I don't follow Twitter or the Instagram or whatever the heck the kids are talking about, but we're on all of those. We're on LinkedIn. And so it really just going to our website is probably the quickest way. My uh, Monday Musing blog is on a site that's currently called recoveringleadership.com. Uh, just recoveringleadership.com. You can look at my blog there. And then the podcast is Word from the Herd. And that's available on basically all of the standard methods that people get podcasts through Spotify and, and iTunes and all the different places that you can look up a podcast. So check out Word from the Herd. There is a, a broad range of people who come in and talk about important things, whether that be the, the governor of Oklahoma, uh, friends who are in the medical profession, just all, all the way down the line. And so I, I really would encourage you to, to check that out. Thomas, we have been honored by having you be a part of our conversation today, and I hope people felt listening in that you are a, a person that they could talk to, that you're, you're a person that has been there, that you uh, have a great deal of compassion and love for people as they're trying to find their way. So thank you for being a part of the Strata Leadership Show. The Strata mm -hmm. Leadership Show is meant to be a community. It's a place where leaders can come together to think about important ideas, to be reminded of why this stuff matters so much. And it's a leader's responsibility to set the pace, 
to set the tone. And so today, make a difference, be intentional, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Have a great day.